Today's scripture reading is Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, and verses 23 through 29. And just be prepared, Paul comes out of the gate hot on this one. So here we go. Paul writes, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it's been a, uh, I think someone's got the live stream even going, like we're hearing like the tape delay uh, in case, you know, we, we have the profanity tape delay here at church just to make sure we can hit the dump button if anything bad happens. But um, so it's been a long journey that we started right at Christmas and um, we started in studying the gospel of Luke, which is part one of the life and works of Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and then we dipped briefly into Acts, which is, is Luke's second volume of the life and works of Jesus Christ, which, which continue when he sends the spirit and through the ministry of the apostles and the birth of the, uh, of, of the early church. And so today, actually, I wanna give a shout out is it's Ascension Sunday. And the ascension is that um, event where Christ ascends into heaven. It's, it's depicted there in this. I mean, this would be the most prominent, I think, arguably besides maybe the Gethsemane window, um, uh, the most prominent window here, stained glass window, depicting the ascension. And I think the ascension is something that is often neglected in, in when we think about Jesus and who he is and what he accomplished. And even uh, the Christian story, the ascension is... Um, is neglected, I think, sadly. You know, it's sort of like, all right, well, Jesus died, he rose again, and somehow they kind of had to get him off of the, the, off of the stage. And so the ascension, you know, that's what happened. It's like um, in the, if you watch The Simpsons, there was uh, this uh, itchy and scratchy, you know, they're kind of t- very violent Tom and Jerry uh, knockoff. And uh, they added a new character once named Poochie. And Poochie was this cool new character that they added, and Poochie uh, was very unpopular as a character. And so in order to get rid of him in one episode, they very awkwardly stopped what was happening and said, I need to return to my home planet now, and then pulled his little frame off of the screen. And it was just a way to get rid of him. And then they said, Poochie died on the way back to his home planet. So they would never get him again. But so it's kind of like this just beam, beam, we need to get rid of this character, so beam him up. Now, obviously, Jesus is no Poochie and Poochie 
is no Jesus. But, but this departure, this manner of departure can seem just as strange. In fact, the, the Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin, the first, uh, first man in space, um, is reported to have remarked upon his return, you know, I went up there and I looked and I looked and I looked and I didn't see God. Kind of mocking, um, uh, uh, mocking the ascension, and, and that became part of uh, of Soviet propaganda, the the official atheistic uh, Soviet propaganda. But the ascension, when we think about it in terms of Jesus leaving, we're thinking about it the wrong way. It's actually about Jesus's continuing presence with us. And I love what the the Heidelberg Catechism, which is this Reformation era catechism, trying to teach people the essentials of the faith. And it's really, to, to my mind, it's, it's, it's maybe the best, probably the best catechism. And, and so it talks about the meaning of the ascension for us. And so the question is this, in, in, in this question and answer form, and so it asks, how does Christ's ascension to heaven benefit us? And the answer that comes back is this, first, he is our advocate in heaven in the presence of the Father. So how does this ascension benefit us? Well, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father advocating for us. Second, We have our own flesh, human flesh, in heaven as a sure pledge that Christ, our head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. So because Jesus is human, you know, flesh is up in heaven, we believe that we too will go to be there with him someday too. And third, he sends his spirit to us on earth as a corresponding pledge, a corresponding uh, promise. By the spirit's power, we seek not earthly things, but the things above where Christ is, is sitting at God's right hand. And so that's my plug this Ascension Sunday for the importance and ongoing significance of the Ascension. And, it's, and, and, and so Jesus isn't absent from us, but he's present to us in a new way. And, and that brings us to the book of Galatians that we've been in. Because we saw in Acts, you know, the, the, the mission of God continues through the early church, the, the Acts of the Apostles. And um, we see that Gentiles, droves and droves of Gentiles are coming to faith. Non-Jewish people are responding to this message about Jesus. They're coming to faith. And Paul has these very successful missionary trips where he goes out, he preaches the gospel, churches are founded. And then, and then you know, the, the, the answer is that you don't have to become Jewish in order to become a Christian. And that's the decision of the early church. But not everybody's on board with that. And that's what we see in Galatians, that... There are these teachers who've come to the churches he's planted, and they've been saying, listen, Paul did not give you the whole truth. He didn't give you the whole message. He told you that faith is important. And yes, while faith is essential, it's decisive, he also neglected to tell you that the works of the law are essential too. And so they said, you've you've been missing out. You're not fully Christian. And so they began teaching them about the necessity of the works of the law. And, and, and so Paul cannot contain himself with his frustration with his churches. And so the letter to the Galatians is Paul sort of venting his spleen to them and telling them that they lacked nothing because for Paul, the heart of the gospel is that people are justified. That is, they're declared right. They're, they're made right, not on the basis of works of the law, but by trusting in the faithfulness unto death of Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ, it's the one requirement, it's the one badge of membership to show that you belong to God's family. But apparently that just wasn't good enough for the Galatians. And so Paul 
can hardly restrain himself. And we see that right at the beginning of chapter 3, in which Paul really continues to, 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 to let loose. But we're going to home in on two of the themes we see in this chapter. First is the spirit versus the law, and last is what was the point of the law in the first place. So first, uh, you know, kind of this, 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 this spirit versus works or, or, or faith versus works uh, presentation. So Paul opens chapter 3 with this. Uh, I'm a sarcastic person, and so Paul's opening rhetorical question is this wonderfully sharp, sarcastic barb where he says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Basically saying, who cast a spell on you? Because that's the only explanation I can come up with for the reason that you who have heard, you know, you've gotten the straight, pure, uncut gospel from me that you would even entertain adding the law to it. So who cast a spell on you? Who, who, who tricked you? Who bewitched you to make you backslide? And, and, and the reason that Paul is incredulous is evident in another one of these rhetorical questions he asked at the beginning of our passage. Let me ask you this. He says, let me put it to you point blank. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And so Paul is reminding the Galatians of their own conversion story, the, own way, the, the, the way that they became Christians. So Paul came into, you know, some of the towns of, of Galatia, and he told them, he says, uh, Christ was publicly demonstrated to you as crucified. Basically, what Paul is saying is that, that his preaching was this very vivid portrayal of, of, of Christ crucified, almost like he was painting a picture to them of what Jesus endured on the cross. He says, I came and I painted you that vivid portrait of Jesus on the cross, that that was the means whereby God made right what was wrong. And it was clear and it was simple, his gospel, that Jesus did this for you. And so when you trust in him, what's true of him, that he's died to the law, that he's died to sin, uh, that he's died to condemnation. So when he did all that, what's true of him and you trust in him, what's true of him becomes true of you, that he died to those things and he rose to new and everlasting life. That's all you needed. And, and, And Paul's message was that faith in Jesus was all that it took to become God's children, to become members of, of, of the family of Abraham. And the experience of the Galatians has proved this to be true. When Paul preached the cross, when he preached Jesus on the cross, God's Spirit did incredible things. And the most incredible of all, and, and next week we're going to talk about Pentecost Sunday, we're going to talk about the fruits of the Spirit. But, but the most incredible thing, first of all, that the Spirit does is it elicits, it evokes, it awakens faith. That's evidence of the Holy Spirit's power. That when, that when, when this, this message of Christ crucified is preached, it works. It moves people. It, it cuts people to the heart. The truth of it just resonates. That's the evidence of God's spirit, of God's power. Beyond even the miracles and signs and wonders that Paul talks about is the fact that when Christ crucified is preached, it awakens faith in the hearts of people and they believe. You know, not that just this man, Jesus of Nazareth, died this horrible death, but that his death was for them. That this death was, was decisive. It was this decisive act of God to defeat sin, death, and evil, and, 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 and bring people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And so Paul's reminder is that I came, I preached this message vividly. I didn't hold anything back. I preached it to you. And the Spirit moved you. You came to faith. And you formed into these new communities called churches. 
where all of these social distinctions that used to be so important to you before, that used to define everything and, and define the, the broader Greco-Roman society around them, you know, that was full of, of social distinction. He said they were all erased. And you got together and you devoted yourself to, to Scripture and to, to Jesus' teaching and to, to prayer and to preaching and to acts of mercy and charity and justice and, and eating together at the Lord's table. That is evidence of the Spirit's power. And all that happened without you keeping the law of Moses, without anyone getting circumcised, without anyone observing kosher dietary regulations, uh, without strict Sabbath keeping, all of that happened. And so Paul's incredulous. He says, if God did all of that without you keeping the law, then why would you ever listen to these teachers who tell you that you're missing out, that you're lacking something? That unless you keep the law, you're never going to be true children of Abraham. That they would always, at best, be second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Paul can't understand. Why would you listen to that? If they were justified by faith and they received the Spirit in the same way, why would they think that in order to be sanctified, to, to, to kind of grow in, in maturity and grow in holiness and grow in, in, in righteousness, why would they think that if they've been justified one way, they need to be sanctified another way, that they need to keep the law? Paul says, Paul says this doesn't make sense from your own experience, your own conversion story, the, the story of how churches were formed here, but it also doesn't make sense in terms of Scripture. Because he says, Abraham, you know, the teachers are coming in and they're talking a lot about the fact that you're not children of Abraham, that in order to fully belong to God's family, you need to do this. Well, Paul says, let me tell you something about Abraham, that he was reckoned as righteous, not by works of the law but because he trusted in God's promises. And that happened in Genesis 15, Paul says, before circumcision was introduced in Genesis chapter 17. And Paul says, even go back further, go back to Genesis 12, which is, is the gospel. He says, Scripture preached the gospel to Abraham, which is this very wonderful phrase. And the gospel to Abraham was this, that God is going to bless you, you, one of your descendants, in order to bless everybody, all the nations, the whole world that that's the gospel preached beforehand in the Old Testament. Now, we have a fuller understanding because we know who that descendant was, who that person was. It's Jesus through whom this blessing to all the nations of the world will come. But Paul says that that was the message, that promise that God gave to Abraham, that, that, that he believed in God's promise, and that's what made him righteous. And so, understanding that, why would you ever believe that justification you know, came by faith, but then sanctification came through works of the law. Why would you trade on this one thing for another thing? Why would the Galatians be so susceptible to these teachers coming in? And, and I think, you know, the reason for this, maybe one of the reasons for this, it, it should be relatable to us all. You know, why this process that begins with faith, why, why you would want to kind of turn to some other acts or program or works in order to, to, to advance further. Because faith, it, it seems like it can't be enough. Right? It's just too simple. It's too simplistic. We can't believe that we can become more like Jesus in our lives just by trusting in him more. We can't believe that the way we became a Christian faith is the same way that we become more Christ-like. And, and I think we can't believe that because we often struggle. 
And so we look for some kind of rules, we look for some kind of system, we look for some kind of program because we see that, you know, we want to be like Jesus or we want to experience life for transformation, but then we look in the mirror, we look at our lives, and we look at how little progress we've made. You know, we struggle. We, we, we struggle with things that are the most basic. We struggle to be forgiving. We struggle to forgive. You know, we know we're, we're supposed to, but we can't just bring ourselves to do it. Or we struggle to be generous. We know we're supposed to, to be generous people. We're supposed to give freely and generously and joyously. But, you know, we find that we don't feel that way. You know, we're kind of tippers, not tithers. And I'm, I'm not, not just talking about giving to church here. Or, or we struggle with, okay, we know, you know, we're, we're in the world and not of the world. And so there's a countercultural aspect that comes to following Jesus. But, you know, when it comes to politics or when it comes to, you know, so-called matters of social justice or social issues, you know, that there's a countercultural nature to Christian life. But, but we see that we struggle because we, you know, we want to be liked and accepted and being misunderstood or piled on or rejected is scary. And we go, it can't be as simple. I believe, but it can't just be as simple as faith. There's got to be something else that we're missing. And the truth of the matter is this. When it comes to sanctification, growing in holiness, growing in Christ-likeness, really the issue, I think, I think our struggles, our failures, they, they, they do, they almost always come down to trust. Now, I'm not saying that improving in areas of our life doesn't take work that becoming healthier, a healthier person, physically healthier, emotionally healthier, uh, spiritually healthier doesn't take some work, that it doesn't include doing things. But, but I'm talking about these big spiritual roadblocks that we face that, that almost always comes down to trust. You know, take forgiveness, a big one I struggle with. And, and the problem with forgiveness, the reason it's so hard is it, it, honestly, it feels unjust sometimes. It feels like you're letting someone off the hook. And that just does not feel right. Right? It feels like you're being hoodwinked or swindled. You're failing to hold a person accountable for a wrong that they have done to you. That's not fair. You're not making them pay you back something that they owe you. That seems unjust. And that can even happen even if the person has apologized or tried to make it right. Because we know that the wrong still stands. You know, even when wounds heal, they, they still leave us with scars. Now, please uh, do not mishear me. Forgiveness is, is not about not having any boundaries or putting yourself in an unsafe situation. But, but forgiveness is letting go of our right to demand something from another person that ultimately they can never give us and, and that we know we can never give to them. We, we, we can't roll back the tape of life. We can't get in a time machine and undo what we've done. We can never fully right our, our wrongs. And so we can't forgive, and so we look for something else to, 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 to distract us or, or some other kind of workspace righteousness we can find, uh, which, you know, is better than, I think, just giving up. But, but it's no substitute for faith. And so when we struggle with things, it's not an invitation to look elsewhere besides faith, but to actually look again at our faith. What is it that we are substituting there? So when it comes to forgiveness, you know, it's an invitation to trust even more that because Jesus is judge, you know, we don't have to sort everything out. And because we've been forgiven by him and given ultimately the best things that there are, you know, we've been given the spirit, we've been given the promise of, of e- eternal life. Um, 
that there's nothing that the person who we need to, for, to, need to forgive can ever give us that would ever compare to what we've already received. We've gotten it. And so we can let go. And that's one of the, one of the words in the, um, in the New Testament that gets translated as forgiveness is this word for release. It's this word for letting go. And the cliche, sometimes these church cliches, you can grow up in the church and hear all the cliches, but they're sometimes cliches because they're true. And I love cliches. One of my best friends in high school when we graduated, his graduation gift to me was a book of, it was a dictionary of, of proverbs and cliches because I was the master of cliche. But let go and let God, right? And we hear that and we go, oh gosh, like my eyes have done a 360, 720 degree spin in my head. But it's true, we're letting go. And I heard uh, Tim Keller, he made, he made a point like that in, in, in a sermon about this passage. I think it's so true. That when we find ourselves getting stuck, you know, we're always going to look for some kind of law, some kind of work, and instead what we, we, we need to do is, is we need to ask, what am I looking for that I feel I'm not getting from Jesus? And it's not an excuse to go looking for something else besides faith, but instead an invitation to delve deeper into what it means to trust in him. That's the only way. And so the Christian life is a life of faith from first to last, of trusting in the sufficiency of Jesus and the Spirit's power, and there's nothing we can add to it, nothing we can take away from it. All right, so now I want to jump ahead to the, to the second part of our passage, the end of our passage, where Paul finally addresses a question. I think his letter, this letter to the Galatians has been raised because he says, the teachers have come. And they've told you, you need the law. And Paul has come down pretty hard on them. And so you might think, well, what was the point of the law in the first place? Why would God give the law if Paul is so against it? Was it unnecessary? Was it bad? Was it wicked even? What was going on here? And so Paul would hear those kind of questions. And if he was a German, you know, he would respond, and he does in our passage, but if we were German speakers, you know, we would hear Paul's response as this strong, nein. No, we're, we're, we're Russians, yet. No, the law's not bad. Paul isn't against it at all. He's just against this belief that the law is what makes us right in God's eyes, that it can give us life. Paul says if the law could do that, then Jesus would not have needed to die at all. And in fact, his death on a cross would have been unnecessary, a tragedy, a scandal. In fact, early in our passage in, in chapter 3, it was left out of our reading today, but Paul makes it clear that Jesus' death on the cross, actually, according to the law, was, was cursed. It, Jesus, in dying that way, put himself under the law's curse. In Deuteronomy, it says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so the law by itself doesn't bring blessing, but instead brings condemnation. And Paul says, that's not a bug, that's a feature. That's the law doing its job. Paul asks in our passage even, why then the law? That's a great question. Paul, you've been coming down really hard on the law. Why then the law? And he says, it was added because of transgressions. All right, so what does that mean? And, 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 and so here I think we get into some very helpful, some very rich theology, what the church has historically called the uses of the law. And depending on if you come from a more Lutheran background or more Reformed, there, there's either two or three uses of the law. And I'll just come out right out and say that good things always come in threes. So I think there's three uses of the law, but we see two of them really strongly indicated in this passage. And the law has, has, has three jobs. 
And so here in this passage, we see the first two of those. One of them is, is the job of the law is to restrain lawlessness, wickedness. You know, think about it. One of the things that laws do is they threaten us with punishment, and so they keep us from doing bad things. You know, if, there is a, if, if, if it's a crime to steal something or to do something else, you know, it'll kind of keep you in line. And so God's law does the same function. It restrains wickedness because even bad people will obey the law for fear of punishment. That's, I think, one of the things Paul is getting at when he says that the law kept people imprisoned until the coming of faith. That the law acted as this, this restraint for a people who couldn't help themselves. And the second use of the law, though, is as is a mirror. You know, we, we hold up the mirror of God's law, and it reveals to us who tend to think highly of ourselves that, uh, you know, when we measure our lives against that of a, 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 a holy and just and, and perfect and gracious God, you know, when we look in that mirror, we can't help see that we fall short. Again, early in, early in this chapter, Paul quotes Deuteronomy again, where it says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So he's saying we're all equal. We hold up that mirror. Guess what? We all don't look that good. We might think we look good when we compare ourselves to other people, which is what we're always doing. And I think that's one of, uh, just an aside, I think that's why reality television is so popular. It gives us the freedom to sit and judge people for how messed up they are. And it feels good. Right? Doesn't it just feel good? Like, those people are crazy. I'm not. That feels so great. They're making fools of themselves. I'm not. But so, so we're always holding up these mirrors and going, you know what, comparatively, it doesn't look so bad. And we hold up the mirror of the law and we, oh, I'm hideous. But instead, right, uh, you know, of, 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 of just recoiling and running away, instead what we do, what God wants us to do when we look at ourselves in that way through the law is to run to him. Run towards him. And, and when we do that, when we can run away from all the other things when we do, when we hold up mirrors and compare ourselves to other people, the judgmentalism, the moralizing, the soapboxing, the grandstanding, right? This, these puritanical tendencies that run deep in all of us. And, and, and so we can let go of that and we can run to him and his grace and his mercy in his arms. And I do think, I think that's one of the, 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 the hallmarks of our age. One of the struggles of our age is this real gracelessness that's everywhere. Uh, you know, depending on what you think of that term, I, I think, you know, that, that's what cancel culture is at its core, right? And, 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 and so uh, that term, you know, I think is played out. I think it's jumped the shark. There was the horse trainer, Bob Baffert, uh, whose horse won the Kentucky Derby, and then it tested positive for performance-enhancing drugs, and so they weren't going to let it run the Preakness or the Belmont. I can't remember which one is second in the Triple Crown because it tested positive for drugs, and he's being interviewed on TV, and they're like, Bob, what do you think? They're not going to let your horse run it. Tested positive for drugs. He goes, you know, that's just cancel culture. Just run amok. And you go, I don't, you can't just do that, man. Like, when you do something bad, it's cancel. Dave, you were arrested for robbing the liquor store. It's cancel culture. Like, when we see that, we see that this term, you know, it's maybe jump the shark. But I do think that the term is trying to describe a mood in our culture that is a very real thing. Or if people say it's just accountability culture. Well, accountability for the, and not for me. And so I think it does capture something about this mood, about this graceless streak that's running through our world that, that wants to, you know, not just label people as sinners, but as irredeemable or, 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 or to destroy people's lives and livelihoods that, that, views, that views forgiveness itself as unforgivable. So God's desire 
<laughs> through the law. His dad has hold us up, go, ah, and, 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 you know, cancel us. But, but to cancel our sin and, and to help us be unburdened of, of the weight that it causes us to carry, to let go. So Paul's chief claim here, though, is that the law really acted like a babysitter. And that's my paraphrase of this word that gets translated here as guardian. That the law was a babysitter. And I, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, and I have an older sister, and she loved those books, The Babysitter's Club. There's a whole series of them that were very popular. If you're of a certain age, maybe you were in the Babysitter's Club, or you had a daughter or a granddaughter who was really into them. It was all about the hijinks. You know, it sounded cool to me. And as a, as a young boy, I, I was interested in babysitting mainly for making money. That seemed like, how do you make money as a child? There's no way. And babysitting seemed like the ultimate racket that I wasn't interested in getting in on because I didn't want to care for children. But in the Greco-Roman context, this guardian, this babysitter, was it would be a household slave responsible for looking after the children of the house and making sure they got to school safely and that they were minding their manners. And so Paul's saying that the law was like this babysitter that God sent who, who was supervising his children until they got to the point of full maturity. That point, he says, when Christ came. Now, I want to give a shout out here to one of my favorite babysitters of all time. It's someone um, that some of us in this sanctuary knew personally. And this was a woman named Jeanette Weeks. And so Jeanette was a woman who I met um, in the late 80s here at church, and she was one of my favorite people, and I know that I was one of Jeanette's favorite people too. She would really, if she liked you, she would really dote on you. And, and Jeanette um, had had a stroke and some severe health problems, but she was this incredible woman. She had just this just sharp sense of humor, and she was sarcastic, but uh, just this delightful person. And I remember when I was about seven years old, my parents had Jeanette watch my sister and I for an evening, and Jeanette was my favorite babysitter because she let me do things that other babysitters wouldn't let me do, including there was this food, I wanted to do like food experiments, and so I put Rice Krispies and shredded cheese on top of Rice Krispies and put it in the microwave. And somehow I had gotten some plastic in there, so you, it filled our kitchen with smoke. And you know burning plastic, like there is no aroma like that in the world. But you know what, Jeanette, she didn't get mad. No harm, no foul. But that's not what made Jeanette a great babysitter. <laughs> I won't say that. Uh, we lived, so we, my sister and I lived. We didn't kill each other. So, but, but what made her such a great babysitter was that she, when she was watching over you, she let you know that she cared deeply about you and that she loved watching you grow up and mature. And she was interested in things you were interested in. Um, and, and I actually had the, when Jeanette, she passed away, it was almost six years ago. And I, and I got to preside at her funeral, and that was such an honor. And so Paul's point is that, is that the law wasn't bad. God gave it to act like a babysitter till such a time as God's people were ready to grow up. And the reason Paul says they were ready to grow up is that Jesus is the one who fulfilled everything that the law required. He lived up to it. And so he showed that it was no longer needed in the same way. And so when we belong to Jesus, we don't need a babysitter anymore. Think about how strange it would be if I had grown up, you know, I'd still look to Jeanette as my babysitter. If I had said, well, you know, I'm 24 years old and married, I said, Jeanette, could you come over and watch, watch us for the night? Uh, we want to do some fun food experiments. You know, that would have been inappropriate. That would have just been weird. But instead, you know, as I, as I grew older, we related to one another as friends. And just as an aside, when I think of Elevate, and Jeanette had some strokes, and she had real serious mobility issues and lots of health problems, but when I think of Elevate, I think of Jeanette. 
how I would have loved to have been able to have her just come here and worship with us, even though she was no longer able to walk. And, and, and Jeanette, I really miss Jeanette. She was a one-of-a-kind person. And that's, that, that brings me, in, in thinking of, of that story, that role of the babysitter, it brings me to that third use of the law. So the first is, you know, the threat of punishment keeps bad people from doing bad things. And the second one, we use it as a mirror and we go, we're, we're, we're not everything we thought we were. And so we need God's grace. But lastly, we can relate to law, the law, as a dear friend. It's no longer there to discipline us or imprison us or condemn us. It's no longer responsible for us. Instead, it's there to guide us as we mature in Christ. And so how do we grow up? How do we mature? How do we get to the point where we don't need a babysitter anymore? How do we become one with Christ? So what's true of him is true of us. How do we become full members of God's family? The answer for Paul, unsurprisingly, is faith. Faith that Jesus has done it all. And the ultimate step of faith that Paul talks about is, is baptism. It's, it's trusting to God because the waters of baptism are, are the waters of dying to our old self, right? Dare to be plunged in those waters and washed and die to the old world and enter into the new one. Dare to take off your old clothes, which might be comfortable, but aren't going to fit in the new one and, and, and put on Christ. Dare to rid yourself of these old identities that we cling to or apply to us that define us and give us status and standing and meaning and put on the one identity that truly matters, that we belong to God through Jesus Christ. And that, that's Paul's stunning statement in verse 28 where he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor, female, uh, slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And this is most likely something that Paul is drawing from an early Christian baptismal Formula And it, in, in itself, it's, it's this riff, really a repudiation on, on a prayer that would be used in the synagogue where, where a righteous person would be standing there praying and thanking God that they weren't a Gentile or a slave or a woman. And you hear that. And then you hear this. And, and baptism shatters those categories and those distinctions. And it says what matters, you know, what matters in, in here isn't who you are, but whose you are, right? Who you belong to. It's not who you are. It's not who you say you are. It's not who other people say you are. It's who God says you are in Christ. We're one family with one mission, eating at the one table because we've been invited by the one Lord. And so these teachers have come in and they're talking about who's children of Abraham. Well, uh, the old Sunday school song I love here, you know, Father Abraham has many sons and daughters. And many sons have Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So what? So let's all praise the Lord. Right arm, you know, it's, you get the whole thing. But uh, we're all God's, we're all children of Abraham through faith. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.